All right, Hebrews chapter 12. I had planned to do the whole chapter, but then we started like 20 minutes late. So <laughs> we'll just see what happens, and we'll go from there. We are at the very end of the book. In fact, so if we do finish tonight, there's not really any book left. Uh, chapter 13 is kind of a, I've said what I had to say, here's a bunch of reminders. It's almost like, just don't forget, be good. And here's a list of specific ways we mean be good. Now, there's some really cool things in that list of be goods, and so we're going to unpack those. Uh, I actually love some of the stuff in chapter 13, but technically the argument finished in chapter 10, and we've been working through just kind of the application of that argument since, and now the it's kind of like he's ending his sermon with just this visual imagery, and that visual imagery started at the end of chapter 10 when he... He gave us those, let us draw near, let us hold fast our confession, um, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, and then don't neglect assembling together, and then he goes into that scary, now if you go on sinning deliberately, um, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, and we get to see that it's terrifying to you know fall into the hands of the living God, you think, you know, uh, the great awakening, thinks Sinner. sinners... In the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards, that's, that's the idea of that passage. If you choose the wrong path now, um, it's a terrible place you end up with. Now, for them, then, this context in the book of Hebrews, the path is not just a simple choose Jesus or don't choose Jesus. It's a little more precise than that. And what's their particular option, so to speak, on the table? I choose Moses or choose Jesus. So the scenario is we've got Jewish Christians being persecuted by non-Jewish Christians, trying to get them to turn back just Moses. So walk away from Jesus, just follow Moses instead. Did I say that right? You're you looking said at it backwards. I said it backwards? They're being persecuted by non-Christian Jews. Christian Jews. What did I say? Non-Jewish Christian. <laughs> okay. I like, yeah, I said that wrong. Said that the wrong. whole conversation's Jewish. So no, technically no Gentiles in the immediate context. So the immediate context, Jewish Christians persecuted by non-Christian Jews. There we go. To leave Moses, sorry, to leave Jesus and go back to Moses. So that, you know, threat that ends chapter 10 is about apostasy. That word apostasy gets used every now and then in Christian subculture, and basically never in any other context. What's what's the basic idea behind apostasy? Going away from the truth. Going away. So, but not just a having a particular errant doctrine. It's a forsaking. Not this thing. I'm going this way. So, an apostasy in the Old Testament would be. We're going to have an Old Testament illustration in this chapter. Would be instead of Yahweh, I go with Baal. Well, that's apostasy. But it's also apostasy to go from Baal to Yahweh. But instead of apostasy, we don't call it that when you go that direction. What do we call it when you go that direction? Restoration. Conversion or the R word? Repentance. Repentance. There you go. So apostasy and repentance are the same thing. 
relative to your perspective. So think apostasy as anti-repentance. So they turned to Christ as Lord. Apostasy is to turn away from Christ as Lord. This is not, not anymore. I don't want this. And so he's laying the law down. He's, he's being very direct, very clear with them at the end of chapter 10. To do that is to choose to be in the hands of the terrifying, all-consuming, wrathful God of the scriptures, especially also the God of Moses. And then we get chapter 11, which is a beautiful opposite scenario about how, what, what do we call that, the hall of faith? So you got all these examples of people who aren't like that but perish. Instead, they're the people who have faith. And then you go through all these examples of people who have faith. And faith in its most basic sense is to trust, to trust God now to obey because you trust this person to fulfill a promise. So that's, I lost the markers. So the idea of faith, this is very important. If we miss this, um, Hebrews doesn't work. There's a lot of ways in which Protestant Christianity doesn't work. This is a, a linchpin, a turning point. This is a cornerstone element of how our system works. The doctrine of justification by faith, which we'll talk about um, in October when we get into the Reformation series. We're going to finish um, 2 Corinthians, the last Sunday of September. We're going to do the five sola, sola scriptura, sola fide. Um, if you don't know that expression, it's just the doctrine of justification by faith. And if you do this wrong, um, the entire system of Protestant theology of salvation by grace all falls apart. So it's, you know, faith may seem like a very basic concept for us, but it's, we can't get it wrong. If we get it wrong, it's foundational. The whole house falls apart. So just to remind ourselves, faith implies the passage of time. So I'm, I'm walking. I'm going in a direction. God has made a promise to do something here. And then along this path is difficulty. Or, wow, okay. I didn't have enough. Did y'all hear that? Bad stuff. Bad stuff. No grace and grammar. I've been through that before. Bad stuff. There you go. There we go. That's all I'm going to put up there. Everybody's with me so far. So, there's bad stuff, or maybe just uncertainty. That's a big word. Not clear. <laughs> Not clear. All right. All right, so some of the examples given, and one of the coolest examples in the Old Testament is, is of course, Abraham. And But the Sarah one is really the one I, I like, and I told you to underline in chapter 11. And we're just rehashing this because it's going to help shape chapter 12. Um, she believed... Or she received power to conceive because she believed God was able to do what? what he to do what he promised. So faith is about trusting the promise. And the trusting equates to obedience during the bad stuff. That's basically what we mean. It's God said, I'll do blank. Well, you didn't get the name blank, so we talk about that name and claimant sort of worldview. God named it. Sarah didn't say, well, I'll name it. I'm going to have a baby, and I'm going to trust the Lord to do it. No, God showed up and said, you're going to have a baby. 
unbelievable scenario, but she received power to do it because she obeyed, because she trusted that the promise would happen. Same scenario, a little later, same child. Abraham has been promised what about Isaac after he's born? What's, what's this child going to be? He, he's the heir. The, the promise to uh, how you're going to be the father of many nations that's coming through Isaac. God promised, named the, the, the human being that promised this is happening through Isaac. That's the promise. Guaranteed. So we trust God to do the thing at the end, later. But then God creates a difficult, bad stuff scenario for him. And what's the request that God makes of Abraham in spite of this promise? Take him up on the mountain and kill him. And we saw that really interesting paragraph in chapter 11 where it says, Abraham had so much promise, or so much faith, in God's promise, that he knew he was coming back down the mountain with Isaac, regardless of what happened. Including, maybe he really was going to have to slaughter Isaac on the altar. And then what was God going to do? Raise him from the dead? That's the only way God can be faithful. Abraham goes up there and doesn't come back with Isaac. God's the one who's not faithful. That's options not actually on the table. So Moses had enough faith to know, I'm going up on the mountain. I'm going to obey in the bad stuff because I trust God with the, the future promise that he has made. Now, in the grand narrative, so if you remember in chapter 11, there's kind of this weaving in and out. Uh, a local narrative jumps back out to the big story. And it, it does it kind of confusingly, to be honest, but it's part of just Greek literature and how he's selling the argument. He's, he's weaving in and out. Um, the reason they're doing these things is because they want to reach the promise, maybe capital P promise. So technically, in Abraham's scenario, the promise was Isaac. The promise was the nation. And all these scenarios, there might be a literal, immediate promise that could be fulfilled. But he keeps coming back out and says they didn't receive what was promised. Well, what particular promise did none of them receive in the Old Testament? Resurrection, exactly. This eternal state of resurrection. It even climaxes that way at the end of chapter 11. They did all of these things. They suffered these things. They obeyed during all the bad stuff because they wanted to rise again on the other side. So the resurrection becomes this image of the future. So I can obey now in spite of the bad stuff because of the glory, we could call it the joy that is set before us. In other words... Hebrews' big word, the promise. I can obey because of the promise. So that's where we get to chapter 12. And technically we did read the first two verses, but we're going to start back just to rebuild that image, and let's walk through the verses individually. So chapter 12, verse 1. So therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Let us also, what is just that basic grammar, even in English, really clear, what's that say? We also need to do something implies what? In addition, so, so, so there's other people that have done this, and in the verse, that's the great cloud of witnesses. And so who's that a reference to, technically? Old Testament. Chapter 11. Old, all Old Testament saints, locally we're talking about chapter 11, but they're Old Testament saints, so that's the correct answer. So we've got all these guys. 
as witnesses, as examples, might be a better word in, in our understanding of the, the word. So we have all these examples of people who way back here trusted God with what was over here, so they did the bad stuff. They endured the bad stuff. They obeyed in spite of the bad stuff because they saw the joy before them. So let us also, in that same way, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So in a metaphor, what is this piece called? The, the time between now and the future resurrection What's he called? What was his word for this piece? What are you doing? What? It's a race. Exactly. Endurance course. It's an endurance course. You you've got to run this race, and I'm like I hate this metaphor because uh, I hate running. Right? And but maybe that's why it's a perfect metaphor because even in their world, just just back it up. You know, in our world, running means what? Well, in our world, it's it's well, it's exercise. Running's not running's work. It may be bad in the sense of I don't like it, but it's a le. I mean, technically, it's a leisure activity, right? We we go somewhere to run. That's not what he meant, right? I mean, technically, yeah, there were some form of Olympic games or there were races. But why are you usually running? Something, something's chasing you, right? Running is not just this positive, oh, let's go for a run. No. I mean, running for them is like a, a metaphor for the craziness of life. Like, you better keep running or the bear's going to eat you. All right, you better keep running or you're going to die. Right? Think that when you say, so we got this race set before us. So right out of the gates... Whistles blown, semi-negative illustration. That's what I'm getting at. There's an assumption here that not every part of this race is going to be fun. Not every part of this race is going to be enjoyable. And we need to get rid of the weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, we could camp out on the, the metaphor there, but I think we all follow the idea of that. Because technically, any time we sin... What's that doing to the race? Well, to some degree, it's adding baggage. It's, it's altering the path. You know, like you're on a particular course towards a particular promise, a particular end, and really sin in a way is taking some of the detours. You just made the trip. You ever make one wrong turn and your GPS recalculates and it added like 20 minutes to your trip? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? This is ridiculous. I missed one turn, especially on the interstate. You miss oh, yeah. an exit. I could be a 45-minute mistake. Yep. Right? Anybody ever gone through the median because they didn't want it to be a 45-minute mistake? <laughs> True confession? Okay. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's kind of what's going on here. But let's let's move forward. So here's what we're supposed to do. So we lay aside those things so we can run the race, looking to Jesus as an example. So we have those Old Testament examples, but obviously our best example is Jesus. So Jesus, 
How'd he do it? For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So for him, the resurrection's involved in his promise, but what's the ultimate, what's the climax of the promise Jesus had from the Father? Sitting down at the right hand. Right hand of the throne. He's majesty, glory. So this is Jesus now. For us it is. Now Jesus does experience resurrection, and that's the state in which he enjoys these two things. So it's intimately connected, but his is a little bit more precise. But so he's just the specific example, then we come back, we extrapolate out to us. So Jesus endures, you see this here, the bad stuff. By saying endures the bad stuff, we mean he obeyed. He did the will of the Father. He did what he was supposed to do for the joy set before him. So what's the motivation factor going on here in the faith? The joy, the, the promised thing at the end. God will be faithful with this promise. So Hebrews 11, 6, if you want to please God, you've got to believe he exists. And, the reward of those and he rewards those who seek him. So boom, right there. This is all coming, he's making sense. That's what we're talking about. This is the nature of faith. Jesus becomes our example. All right, with that said, let's fill in a couple blanks. So we have a guaranteed future with the Lord in the resurrection. Why is it guaranteed, or what's the guaranteed element of it? Well, will he do the resurrection thing at the end? Yes. It's the whole point. God is faithful to do the thing he named. God has named it. We believe it. We have absolute certainty in that sense. Or we need to turn from sin and run the, you can fill that one in, race well. Furthermore, we need to persevere to make it to the end of the race. Now, Hebrews uses this lingo a lot. Now, if you remember, we, we went over this pretty heavy when we were in chapter 6, and we've hit it a few other times. Um, if you are on this course, and then you apostatize and head towards a different destination, do you still get to experience the joy of resurrection? No. Not according to Hebrews. What, what was the argument? We said, who does that happen to? People that didn't have faith in the first place. All right, they're, they're not really redeemed if that's happening. The whole point of the whole story was the blood of Jesus is so effective. If it gets on you and you start running this race, I mean, you've pumped up, you're using drugs, you, you're going to make, okay, I use a negative thing as a positive example. Yell with me. Like, you make it to the other side. Maybe that one, I don't know. Everybody's looking at me like, what are you talking about? Okay, so we need to persevere. <laughs> All right, last one there. The basis of faith is trusting God with the difficulties of the race, knowing he can get you, I use this word with caution, safely through to the end. Safely through to the end. When I say safely, all I mean is you do make it here. That's what I mean by safe. I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything bad stuff doesn't happen here. I'm saying you do make it here 
in the end, you get there. And you might have to die in between now and then. I say might. That was wrong. You'll die. One way or another. <laughs> between there and here. Unless you get raptured. <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> we'll go there one day. I say that. One day when you're working, we'll go there. Physically, you're right. All right, the obstacles to the race. That's what the rest of the chapter, or say the next large section of the chapter is about. All right, verse 3. We're not making good time. <laughs> Consider him, because technically we're only just now getting to a new scripture. Because no, we did that last time. week. Yeah, I just need to go. I, good illustration. It did distract me, though. <laughs> Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Who are we considering? Jesus. Who did he endure suffering from? Sinners, but precisely we're talking about who? Jews. His own people. His people. Um, so he endured suffering from them. In your struggle against sin, now here, we're talking about your race. And that struggle, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That could mean two different things. I'm not sure which, to be honest with you. I can see it both ways. One of those is you hadn't been killed yet. You got further to go. The other is we do have this story in Luke's gospel when Jesus is suffering, anguish before the crucifixion, and he's praying through it. And what's he start to do? He starts to bleed. He's actually sweating blood. The illustration works the same either scenario. I'm not sure. Most of the commentaries I read go with the first Example, not the second one, but I don't know. It's just such a direct reference, and we're talking about Jesus. So I don't know. I, I, I can see both. Um, either way, the idea is you haven't gone as far as he did. Because whether we're talking about him shedding blood in the garden, what did he do the next day? He, he literally shed all of his blood on the cross. So no matter how we look at it, you hadn't done that yet. Verse 8. If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Okay, let's fill in the first blank and then let's deal with that word. Suffering is guaranteed if God loves us. So I'll read verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? All right, so, I skipped something, didn't yeah, I? I, didn't, I was like, like, that ain't right. I'm, I'm missing a verse. Start at verse 5 again. All right, I need the 5, exactly. Five, six, seven. Yeah, I was like, we missed the whole Deuteronomy quote. That's what, I'm just rushing. I'm not running the race well. And <laughs> I was like, we never got to the love part. Yeah. All right, so, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, discipline in which all have participated, 
Then you were illegitimate children and not sons. All right, that makes a lot more sense. Though. I was like, I missed the love thing. Did I just make that up? Okay, so <laughs> suffering is guaranteed if God loves us. Do you see the connection? So what's he calling the suffering? Discipline. Discipline. All right, so. Which is the flip side of love in this case. He loves us enough to discipline. So we have to unpack what we mean by the word discipline. Because we can make an error here. And I want you to see that that's not the right way to interpret this. So let's define discipline. What does it mean to be disciplined? Can you please say what you just said before that? Uh, I was thinking about it. Screw this up. Well, I was talking and I missed it. Can you say discipline in the way we can We can think of discipline in an incorrect way. And I want to make sure we, we don't. Well, it's not punishment. Okay, so Jeff says not punishment. There's a desired outcome from it. So what's the idea of punishment then? To hurt? And how's that not vengeance? Well, it is. Penalize. Getting closer. So let's fill in a blank, and then I'll explain what I'm talking about. God's discipline of his children is not punitive. And I have no idea if that's an A or an I. Anybody know that word? Is it punitive? Punitive. I say it, but I don't have to write it ever. So, all right, it's not punitive. So think of balance of the scales. Almost every world religion has a punitive form of justice. Even... Technically, even God's wrath is not fully punitive. There's a punitive element to it, but it's not exactly punitive. The idea is, all right, if you're sued and there's punitive damages, anybody know what's going on with that? What does that mean? You owe them something. So we, we balance the scale. There's some wrong you did me. You have to be wronged or hurt or you have to lose towards the other side to balance the scale. You follow what I'm saying? So when you discipline your children, hopefully it's not punitive. If it's punitive, you're doing it wrong. I want to make them hurt because they hurt me. No, not at all. What are you doing when you discipline a child? Teaching. Correcting. Steering behavior. Well, it's not always correcting, though. It is, but sometimes it's just direction, it's shaping, it's it's instruction. These are all forms of discipline. In fact, discipline, disciple, learning is the base idea here. So God is using suffering to discipline you, but not punitively. Let me explain this scenario. We have a tendency, or let's just fill in the next blank, and then I'll explain. So God's discipline is not the result of specific sin in our lives usually he totally can't do that okay but that's not what this passage is talking about Um, but rather the general method by which he transforms our hearts all right so here's what we have a tendency to do i'm suffering that means there was something i did that god is punishing me for false it's not how it works where does punish? Where is punishment in the biblical scheme? On Jesus. It's on Jesus. God has no wrath to pour out on you 
if you were his child. That's not how this works. Now, is there a behavior you have that God might have to specifically work on? Yes, that's an option. But even that is still not what this passage is talking about. What's the suffering that they're experiencing here? It's persecution. So is God punishing his people for some sin, so he's making them get persecuted? No, that's not really what's happening, is it? It's a more general sort of thing that's going on. Think about it like this. So here you are, and you're on your journey towards the end, and let's just say this this is heaven. You'll finally be perfect over there, and we'll make this kind of your growth in holiness. Your journey is probably not going to feel that that uphill, okay? But just in a perfect world, let's say it was. You're you're doing a little better. Every you know we know in reality it's more like <laughs> what's happening. You know, like what, what are you even doing? It might look like that, okay? In the real world, you know, your, your soul doesn't even know what direction to go sometimes. But but there's this guaranteed: he who began a good work and you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Like you make it to the other side. At least a little higher than you started. That part's guaranteed. I don't know what it looks like in the meantime, but you. So, just for the sake of simplicity, though, let's just go with our simple illustration. So that's your that's your growth in the Lord. Sanctification. Sanctification. Exactly. That's the fancy term. We call it the fancy term. This is your sanctification. What happens, however, is if you really know yourself, your knowledge of your level of sanctification may be greater than your actual sanctification. You ever sinned and you know you shouldn't? Like today? (laughs) So you get saved. So that, let's change colors. Finally, Rob, the colors have mattered. All right, here we go. So that's what you're actually doing. Your knowledge may do this. Right? So you get saved, you're like, man, I'm doing pretty good. In fact, there's a possibility that it went like that. Or maybe you're you're just, you know, <laughs> you're like that. You knew you knew you weren't right, you know, pretty I don't know, everybody's a little different. What I'm making though is you know where you ought to be is not where you are. Right now in this moment. Okay? And where you know you ought to be. It's completely wrong. Because where should that be? That's how Jesus did it. You follow what I'm saying here? Does God need to discipline you? Yeah. We're not even talking for specific sins here. You're not where you're supposed to be. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. We're, We're not even close. And all of that stuff, the bad stuff section we had, all of that has this upward momentum to it. We go through, we trust God. The more we trust God, the more, honestly, the more we suffer, the more he helps, the more he helps us persevere, the more he's faithful, and all of those difficulties, the more this line, let's go back to black, that is specifically the power pushing that line up. That's how he's doing it. The Lord is disciplining you. You see the scenario here? So he's telling them, 
think about the persecution from a different vantage point. I mean, because obviously, what's their number one goal while they're being persecuted? What do they want to happen? They want it to stop. They want it to stop. I mean, if you ever had any kind of physical pain, what's your number one goal at the moment, usually? I want this to go away. I want to not hurt. Right? But he's saying, no, think about it more like training. You're running. You're exercising. Those pains, there's a sense in which you can learn to appreciate them. And I, I used to cycle. I need to do it again. But I, I would go with my dad, and he was way ahead of me. And we would be going. He'd be riding like 25 miles an hour, and I would be going 18, which to me means I was giving like 150%, just trying to not look stupid behind my the old man. You know what I'm talking about? And he'd just been doing it for a long time, and he was doing well at it. And I would just feel like I was terrible. I mean, it was, just, it was nasty, horrible I just, everything in me wanted to quit, stop, give up. I hate my life. What am I doing? Cycling is the dumbest idea ever. You know, I'm probably going to die on a truck. Trucks are going to come by and hit me. You know, you just start having all these thoughts. But all of this stuff was really good for me physically. It's good for my mental endurance, good for my physical endurance. He's just trying to reorient the whole conversation. So you, sure, you're being persecuted. Praise the Lord. Disciplining you. This is your opportunity to grow. This is the wind in your cells. This is this is the juice going into your, you know, electronic device. I don't know. Whatever it is, this is the means God is transforming you by. So praise the Lord for that. Oh man, there's so many good things in this text. I don't want to go to the next section. I'll just be honest because the next section is really good, and I don't want to skip it. The root of bitterness thing. Um, which is a little further. Oh, yeah. Let's just finish the paragraph we're in. Where did we stop? What was the last thing we read? Have we done 10? Nope. Okay. So, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This part doesn't feel good, but it's worth it. So here, he's, he doesn't give us a pragmatic way to get out of persecution. He doesn't give us a five-step plan to not suffer. He just reorients our definition of suffering. He says, you know what? You know, this is actually the Lord's discipline. Not because you did some specific sin. But because your holiness is nowhere near where it could be, technically then your joy is nowhere near where it could be. Your hope is nowhere near what it could be. Your delight in who God is is nowhere near what it could be. So praise the Lord that has given this opportunity to suffer, this opportunity to be disciplined in his name, so that through this trial, through this suffering, I can mimic my Savior, endure the shame, and set my eyes on the joy that is before us. All right, that's one paragraph, but we did better than I thought we were a few minutes ago. All right, any questions on that? We have one minute. Two holes. Two holes. Likes the goal of God's discipline is. Where's that at? I'm, I've lost my spot. I haven't done anything under the unshakable kingdom. The last two points. So the last two under the obstacles of the race, which yeah. is which is what we just finished. The goal of God's discipline is holiness. 
Or in other words, our complete surrender to Christ-likeness. And then the reason discipline is painful, and this is a setup for the next section, and it's just good. I don't, I don't want to brush it. Um, the, the reason, but I'll go ahead and give you this blank, um, but we'll unpack it next week. The reason discipline is painful is because it challenges our idols. So he's got a really cool section about idolatry in the next paragraph. Um, but I, I, it's too good to rush, so, so let's not do that. Okay. Wow, that felt really quick, but we started late, so that's why. Okay. I got time. <laughs> Not everybody does. All right, let's pray and we will dismiss. God, we thank you for tonight, this opportunity to study your word. I pray that we would run the race. That as we see these clouds of witnesses, we read our Bible, we see examples of faith. But above all, we see Christ, the perfecter, the founder, the author of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the shame of the cross. God, let us run this race, even though it seems painful at times, God, we know that it's for our growth, for our holiness, ultimately for our joy, our satisfaction, our glory in the resurrection. God, let this vision be clear to us so that we can be faithful as we trust your promises and walk in the hard times. God, we thank you for all you do, the ways you've redeemed and saved. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.